Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for joining us for Peak Off Wednesday, another Wednesday with James Valiant. James, you have given us a list of questions this week that I am excited about. How are you doing on this fine Wednesday? I am excited and excited to be here. I hope uh, everything finds you well, too. I'm I'm doing fantastically well. It it does indeed. And you have titled this episode Psychology and Philosophy. <laughs> and we've had conversations and some folks will 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 get this. Uh, about how, you know, once you've got the right philosophy, it seems like psychology just isn't that important. <laughs> Have you run into that before? Oh, all the time. And, you know, it happens with objectivists. And it's not that objectivism uh, is misleading them here. It's they take one objectivist idea and they sort of drop the rest of the context. Ayn Rand was a pioneer of what they call the cognitive theory of emotions which has many adherents today um, in the whole cognitive behavioral realm of therapy, which is sort of one of the main areas of uh, psychotherapy today. Uh, but Ayn Rand was a pioneer of it. Our emotions are shaped by our values. In fact, all of our emotions are the subconscious programming of an evaluation deep into us. So we have this automatic physical response, but that automatic physical response is simply the product of our cognitive evaluation. What you think shapes how you feel. And so a lot of objectivists will think, well, gee, if I have a good philosophy, then what any psychological issue, therefore, <laughs> will be taken care of automatically or is a subject of moral condemnation or praise. Uh, they'll tend to be uh, psychologizers, even though Ayn Rand stood on her head, wrote an entire article in the 1960s denouncing uh, psychologizing and uh I think that in general, people have a false alternative and a package deal offered to them uh, between psychology, which too many people think of it as a deterministic thing. And so people's behavior is a result of their emotions and their psychology, and that it's either psychology or it's ethics, that realm of volition and free will and the areas where we have control. Uh, you know, I'm in control of my conscious actions. I'm in control of my conscious thinking. Um, and so it, but the two coexist. They all coexist in all of us. We are yeah. all volitional entities responsible for our conscious behavior, and we all have psychological contexts. Um, boy, with that, let's get into this. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, false alternative is exactly the right idea because we do the same thing with reason and emotions. If we say, well, we're going to follow reason. Oh, does that mean we're denigrating emotions? We need to kind of stamp that out. No, no, no. So I'm going to jump right to question one, and we will continue this conversation because Leonard Peikoff, Leonard Peikoff was asked, as reprinted in the book, Keeping It Real, he was asked this question. Were Ayn Rand's instant emotional responses to events consistent with her philosophy? Now, anybody who hasn't yet read the essay or especially watched the live presentation at the Fordall Forum of Leonard Peikoff's My 30 Years with Ayn Rand, then you won't already know the answer to this question. But if you have seen that, that is a must-see presentation. If you're new to Ayn Rand, new to objectivism, new to these ideas, and you've got enough of the ideas that you're starting to wonder about the personal or psychological side of what this philosophy looks like, that is the place to go after we finish this conversation today. Yes. Maybe, maybe, we can post, maybe we can post a link to my 30 years uh, with Ayn Rand in the I show. I think now. our producer can put that in the chat. That I'll would be perfect. It is, it is, it's, it's one of the best. 
I, I think that one and Apollo and Dionysus, there, there's a couple of presentations within this philosophy that are so good, they make my top 10 list, and those two might be right on top. So Leonard Peikoff, again, was asked, were Ayn Rand's instant emotional responses to events consistent with her philosophy? And Leonard Peikoff answered, to my knowledge, a little over three decades, yes, <laughs> I never saw her contradict in her emotions her philosophic convictions. She was always in character. And it was the same, whether she was in the living room with two people or on national TV. I never saw her love something and then hate it three days later. I never saw her react with emotions that she would disapprove of philosophically, like envy. She was able to have out-of-context feelings. And this is very a very natural thing. In other words, feelings where for a short period you interpret a situation or forgetting some relevant facts, and then you have an emotion that you don't actually agree with. The example of that in Atlas Shrugged is John Galt watching the success of Hank Reardon and, for a moment, forgetting his course and saying that's the world he wanted. But then he remembers all of the implications and consequences, and that desire goes away. The strongest example I can give in that regard to Ayn Rand is that well, she would go on diets, but would nevertheless have a desire for chocolates, specifically Godiva chocolates, which she loved. She would have that desire, but almost always, and in fact, always, I can't think of an exception, when she looked at the chocolate before she ate it, it would occur to her what would be the consequences and why she wanted to diet, and then she wouldn't take it. And then, and then he wraps up with this, and you'll recognize this from my 30 years. I might add, she sometimes had emotions which were based on a mistake. And in that sense, her feeling did not reflect her philosophic convictions. It didn't go counter to her philosophy, though. It was just a factual error in analyzing the situation. I remember one case where she was very angry for, at me for something it looked like I had done, but that I hadn't done. I told her at that point, after she expressed her feeling, what had actually happened, and she apologized. And that was all there was to it. I don't think you would call that an emotional response inconsistent with her philosophy, unquote Leonard Peikoff. Oh, no, that's, um, that's so common. And objectivism is no insulation from being given bum data. You know, we go with the data that we have available to us. And if there's some credibility to the data, we go with that. And that's what our evaluation is based upon. And if we learn, oh, no, you were just wrong. That's just a mistake of fact. Had that situation been true, had Dr. Peikoff done that thing that Ayn Rand believed he had done at, that, in that, at least in that initial moment, she, her response would have been appropriate. Anger and a feeling of injustice would have been an appropriate response had that happened, whatever that was. And, but, it, but when she learned the fact, that's corrected. Um, and so everyone, objectivism doesn't, it's not like you're going to be insulated from all errors of knowledge by objectivism. That is just bumping along in life as we go through it. But I think the deeper thing here is that what we said earlier, Ayn Rand was correct. Our values, particularly the more, the broader, the more abstract the values, the more they'll have an impact on our psychology, on our emotions and personality and character, it will. And so to, it's almost an interesting question. Were Ayn Rand's emotions consistent with Ayn Rand's thinking? Well, that was her thinking. So much of objectivism is simply her report of her honest introspection. 
so that it, it just almost follows that her emotions, her automatic emotions, followed directly from her own introspective thinking on things to say that her emotions, that in her case, uh, it, it's strange because this was her honest report of her honest beliefs. They're the thing that's going to create and shape her emotions. So uh, it's hardly surprising that Ayn Rand should be the one with, in effect, the most automatized and authentic objectivism of all in her emotional uh, approach to things. So it's hardly surprising uh, that that's the answer. Uh, and I wouldn't, you know, as we're students of objectivism and learning objectivism, it would be a mistake for us to compare ourselves to Ayn Rand. Why don't I have the automatic emotion? Why don't I have the same passion for things? Why don't I have the same approach to things that I'm, no, no. At, that was really her beliefs. That was really what was in her head. And that's why it was expressed automatically, effortlessly, and, you, know, uh, you know, it's like a patellar reflex at that point for her, her emotional reactions to things. Uh, now, it's true that over the course of my life, my emotions have changed and they've altered and they've been shaped by the thinking I've done in the course of the last decades. And for most of our emotions, that's the way it is. And so my automatic emotions are something that I've come to trust, at least in the vast majority of cases. And that's the healthy, I think, way it should be. Um, uh, nonetheless, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our own individual context. We don't have our own individual psychologies because that's also true. You know, we, uh, we did an episode which you entitled the curse of emotional shoulds in which we really hammered home that point that, that we, we are not directly responsible for our emotions. Our emotions, our our reactions to not just the circumstances that happen to us, but our, but our own premises, our own subconscious. These things just happen. You don't direct them, so you should not feel guilt or anger for a specific emotion. You simply use them as clues to, oh, well, what made me feel that? But that episode is worth going back and listening. We do have a super chat. Now, we're on the Ayn Rand Center UK, so you know any Super Chats, hit that dollar sign at the bottom of the chat there, goes to support the Ayn Rand Center UK. Super Chat is from Kindred Amy. I think I know who that is. Hmm. Somebody who um, may be responsible for this uh, coffee mug today. She says, like the white shirt, James. Very cool and stylish. Well, what does that say about my black shirt? But no, you are looking good today, James. <laughs> Absolutely. I can see that she thank has you, that Amy. voluntary emotional reaction there. Well, thank you, Amy. And I'm going to jump to question number two, because these are all related today. And Leonard Peikoff was asked, well, is it possible for a person to act in the absence of any emotional impetus to take that action? Now, here's an answer. This is, you know, occasionally I'll read one of Dr. Peikoff's answers and find them somewhat controversial. This one is on that list because Leonard Peikoff answered it like this. And I want to know what you think, James. Mm -hmm. He says, and I listened to the audio version of this as well, as well, and you could hear it in his voice. He says, I doubt it. I don't think you can act without any emotional impetus, because that would mean acting without any value commitment or involvement. Now, the emotion doesn't have to be a passion. Your passion could even be in the opposite direction. Mm -hmm. But you have to have some feeling for wanting to do this, whether it's to improve yourself or to exercise some faculty, which you know should be exercised or to achieve a thin body when you're tremendously overweight and so on. Well, we'll get back to that in a minute. Yeah. Again, your passion can be in another direction, but 
if you have absolutely no emotional involvement at all, I don't think you can act purely from the cerebrum. That doesn't mean the cerebrum is irrelevant and you act from emotion. What the cerebrum does is give you a commitment, an intellectual decision as to why such and such is a value. And even if it doesn't overcome your fundamental value, it's enough to generate an emotion so that you would act. James, what do you think? I think that's true. The, you know, it, it, the way the question is posed, it's asking us to consider the hard case of can't someone, gr you know, grit their teeth and just get to muscle their way through something that their passions are telling them, no, 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 no. But their mind is saying, yes, yes, yes. And so can my mind, pure, pure cognition, pure thought here, can that overcome the weight of all of my psychology, all of my emotions. There are cases where it can be done, but let me suggest that it can only be done if there is some motivating emotion. It may be, like he says, the, the greater passion may be over here, but unless you have some kind of passion, gritting your teeth and bearing it and oh, working against that other emotion, it really doesn't seem to me that it'd even be possible. I mean, how are you going to overcome this weight of this huge emotion if you don't have any emotion on the other side? So even in that, you know, grit your teeth and get through it moment where you're trying to, you know, set aside all that emotional, you know, uh, you know, interference, uh, there's got to be some emotional motivator there that helps you counter that, um, that helps you counter that. If it's a purely cerebral thing, as he says, if it really is Mr. Spock from Vulcan, I don't see how Mr. Spock from Vulcan does it. Um, <laughs> but apparently in fiction, he can do it. But the truth is Mr. Spock did have emotions. And even in those situations where Mr. Spock is having to say, well, I'm going to just set aside, you know, all this over here. Mr. Spock has some kind of motivation. Mr. Spock has an evaluative motivation that will have some kind of emotional result. I mean, he's got this cognitive evaluation. <laughs> Emotions aren't his enemy. And in fact, what I'd say to Mr. Spock is, you know, Mr. Spock, it's that emotion over here from that evaluation that's going to help you deal with all those emotions that you think are dangerous and inappropriate right now. Interesting. I mean, I'm think, to of think the about that one more. Oh, think, of, think of the real extreme case. Um, mm -hmm. It's a horrific case, but take pedophiles, for example. Um, mm. People who have a psychological desire to have sex, physical contact with children. Okay, that is a very sick, unhealthy psychology, in my view. And, of course, the result is tremendously harmful. The difference between having the emotion and the difference between the behavior might lie in the development. And this is, as a former criminal prosecutor and having read psychological reports and heard from people who are pedophiles, if they don't have some countervailing emotion, I couldn't do that to a child. I couldn't do that to a child. Yes, get that in your head. Have that as a countervailing emotional impetus or the uh, all that other emotional impetus, right, will direct your behavior. Now, we're in control. I'm not saying that the, all that other emotion should necessarily dictate the action. But how's he going to work against some psychological thing? And guess what, folks? Clinical psychology cannot cure pedophilia. 
There is no protocol by which they can either give you a drug or send you through some therapeutic protocol that'll fix fix uh, your pedophilia. I've seen people come out of prison after 10 or 20 years. Within a week, they're doing it again. Now, that shows you a deep psychological problem is going on, and these people have surrendered to that emotion, in effect. And it seems to me that if you're ever going to stop the bad behavior, which is in their volitional control, you're going to need to have some counterweight emotion, some real cognitive evaluation. Damn it, I'm hurting that kid. I should never do that. It would horrify me to touch a child in that way. If they don't have that countervailing emotion, I don't see how they're going to get through uh, having a serious issue like pedophilia with positive behavioral results. Sure. Does that make sense? It does make sense. You know, I was thinking of more the case of uh, when you're facing a task for which you have zero motivation and, and you don't even have an emotion attached to it, but it is a required task for one reason or another. And it would be easy to say, well, but it's going to get me where I want to go. And that's the emotional impetus. But in the moment, I don't feel that at all. It's simply a task that must be done. And the only way I can get through it is to what we might call being stoic or flat, flat affect. So I guess it depends on how you interpret the question. But I've certainly uh, one of the character traits I've tried to foster in myself is the ability to get myself to do things I don't want to do. Well, uh, but even when you're doing the thing you don't want to do, you know, there's a reason mm -hmm. you have an evaluation that tells you there's a good reason. And right. that evaluation can have some emotional impact. Sure. The best way I have of getting through those kind of situations is focusing on that. This is, get the long range goal in mind. Get the reason why I'm doing this unpleasant task in my head. So that even if it's this really unpleasant task that I just have to, like I say, sort of grit my teeth and get through, focus on that evaluation, focus on the value result that you're actually looking for. This is the payment for that. You know, it's the causality duty thing, right? Under right. appreciating this is the required payment to get this kind of value, just in terms of cause and effect, having that realism in my head, as well as the positive value and focus on that positive value. That's what gets me through those situations. Right. Yeah. I guess the kind of example I'm thinking of is one that offers no value other than getting through it. Um, mm. Imagine filling out government forms. Oh. <laughs> Not okay to start there. a business, be but very, just very because you have to do it. Yes. Okay. I, I it would be hard to generate an emotion for that one. <laughs> Or when you're a kid and you're washing your father's car mm. and there's nothing in it for you. So <laughs> that was an interesting one to me. And I'm going to have to mull that over some more. And that means I'm going to jump right to question number three. But first, <laughs> huge shout out to Equal to Reality because he is in with a super chat, sporting the air, CUK very generously. Thank you for that. Now, he is an off topic question. So we may come back to that. But he does ask. And maybe I should ask it now because I don't know, James, if we're going to have an answer to this or not. Maybe some of the folks in the chat will, but he asks, aside from Facebook, YouTube, or the ARC UK Discord, there is an ARC UK Discord server, by the way. If you're a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK, go to aynrandcenter.co.uk and click become a member. You can get on that Discord server. But he asks, equal to reality says, aside from Facebook, YouTube, the ARC UK Discord, are there any other places online where objectivists can hang. 
I don't know. I don't know of any online hangouts besides the usual social network. And you can add, you know, Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat and pick your poison. I don't know beyond that. To me, that's all enough, but that has to do with how I use social well, networking. Uh, you know, there are local meetup groups. Uh, you know, ARC UK began as a local meetup group in a London pub. And there are meetup groups. I've known of meetup groups in Amsterdam, Tel Aviv, London, New York City, Southern California, Austin, Texas. Uh, there are, oh, you know, there's even a group around the Great Lakes. Uh, maybe you've heard of them, Rob. <laughs> but there are meetup groups where there are social opportunities to meet in person, and there is nothing like in-person meeting. There are also conferences. I think of Ocon. Every year, the Ayn Rand Institute uh, sponsors a conference uh, in some <laughs> amazing city of the world <laughs> or the country, uh, and that is, I think, an, an amazing opportunity. You, go to one or two of those at least. Meet the objectivist community, make some personal contacts. There are opportunities out there uh, to network um, and to make friends and maybe meet the future love of your life or something, because I've heard all of those stories coming from these kind of uh, social uh, gatherings. But there are local meetup groups. And of course, every year there's Ocon. Um, so I would urge you, if you want to meet and socialize with other objectivists, to check out your local area. There may well yes. be a meetup group of like-minded people, and definitely go to an Ocon. Um, that's all I can all I can advise you. But yeah. there are opportunities like that. Yes, and Amy and I will be in Miami this year. But since he's asking about online, online, yeah. Wyatt five sixteen does say there's a, there is a Reddit group, which doesn't surprise me. There's a Reddit for everything. Although Reddit's a bit of the wild west, so yeah. Uh, Although some, that's what some people are looking for is that kind of more feisty engagement. You know, the truth, though, is if it is online, pick your pick your social media platform. I myself am very active on Facebook. I'm there almost every single day of the year interacting with people. Ask, you know, they can ask me questions. They can interact with me. They can personally joke with me. They can share music and humor with me. I very much enjoy that on Facebook. Uh, so I think social media as such is just a great opportunity if you're looking for social media opportunities. My goodness, uh, you know, look at all the social media platforms out there from MeWe to, you know, LinkedIn to, there's all kinds of ways to interact online these days. Thanks, thank goodness for the internet and for those genius titans who gave us this very opportunity that we're having right here to interact. But I'm active on Facebook if you wanna interact with me. <laughs> yes, yes. And Kindred Amy says, well, get a Zoom group together. So I love yeah. that she says, start your own thing. She says, set up a Facebook event on your page and invite people for an hour. Set a theme. I, we've done that before. And yeah, it turns out that you can just get together and have an online party with folks. But yes, if, you, if you're looking strictly online, um, yeah, spread that net really, really wide. And we'll see if we get some more suggestions in the chat. But I want to jump to number three because real meat and potatoes of this, as we suggested, once we understand the power of philosophy, the power of these ideas of objectivism, of Ayn Rand's philosophy, but philosophy more broadly, we start thinking, well, then everything is philosophy, hmm. all about philosophy. And that psychology thing, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how important that is, how seriously we can take that. Uh, it matters, I guess, but, you know, it, it gets dismissed. And it, in my mind, it's more like 
I joke around with numbers a lot. I think philosophy is 48 and a half percent of your life. And I think psychology is the other 48 and a half percent of your life. <laughs> and you wonder, well, what's the 3%? The 3% oh, is yeah. that, that 3% is free will. 3% is you actually living your life. Psychology, I think, is, is as big as philosophy. And that's what makes me want to jump right to quite, whoa, I'm sorry. We have, we have a super chat from free trade. Some folks will know free trade from other chats, and especially the Aaron Brooks Show, very, very generous contributor. Well, he is a very, very generous contributor to now the Ayn Rand Center UK through this 5,000 Swedish krona. Um, I don't usually don't get into the amounts that people contribute because all contributions are appreciated, but free trade has very generously contributed to the Ayn Rand Center UK through the Super Chat, and I am honored that he's doing it on our show. Indeed. And says, I deeply appreciate these discussions. Thank you, gentlemen. Well, we deeply appreciate your appreciation. It, James and I could talk for hours and it would be great fun, but holding episodes online, the fact that this is reaching people and they care and it's helping people's lives or giving them more to think about, that it is appreciated. Free trade, thank you so much for that. Very, very generous. Thank you. My gosh. Thank you, sir. That's knocks your socks off kind of contribution. Yeah. My socks are gone. My feet are bare. Thank you for that. And let me jump to question number three, although we'll probably say thanks again. But number three, if a person holds the right standard of self-esteem, and right away an intro like that tells me he's about to say that's all that matters in life. If a person <laughs> holds the right standard of self-esteem, is it still possible to feel a lack of self-esteem as a result of psychological problems? Mm. Now. I'm old enough and I've been around long enough that, that I feel like that question kind of answers itself, but I know that Leonard Peikoff is going to bring wisdom to it. So let me give at least the opening of his answer here. Leonard Peikoff says, well, I'd say, and he answered it in just that tone of voice, because this is another one where I had to hear the audio version. I'd say, yes, you can be perfectly rational and act accordingly and nevertheless feel a lack of self-esteem to an extent. Self-esteem amounts to, in essence, having the conviction that you are metaphysically able to deal with reality and succeed. Being rational is necessary to that, but it is no guarantee of success. If you have problems from the past, contradictions to your later ideas, and you don't know how to solve them, then at that point, you can't be fully convinced of your ability to deal with reality because you sense that there's some unclearness, some confusion, or some ambivalence. You have to uproot that. And it doesn't make you immoral. And it doesn't make you self-doubting in that you walk around and say, oh, poor me, I'm rotten. But it does lead in certain situations to a degree of uncertainty. You have to have consistency on the issues that count subconsciously as well as consciously before you can have unbreached self-esteem. I love that unquote. I love that answer from Leonard Peikoff because, you know, I always sum that up in my own head just to remind myself. I always sum it up as psychology is a thing. 
uh, it's not just you a matter know. of I learned objectivism and now I'm psychologically bulletproof. God, that I think is the expectation of certain, especially young objectivists. Once I've I get my philosophy straightened out, all, all emotions will follow automatically. All psychological issues will fall away to the wayside. No, 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 no. You know, what happens when we're young children can have an outsized effect on our emotions. My adult thinking will certainly, and my adult evaluations will certainly impact my emotions. And they certainly have. And most of the time, that's the nice, easy way it goes. But when we're kids, you know, one psychologist, an objectivist psychologist once explained it this way. And I think it's a very effective way of looking at it. When I'm five years old and, you know, take me today, if someone just walks up and treats me rotten, I think, oh, that guy's just a jerk. <laughs> that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what he's talking about. I have a bigger context in which to evaluate that. When I'm five years old and someone mistreats me, I don't have the same context of knowledge. And yeah, I mean, what did I do wrong? What did, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with me? Why can't I? What is there something bad about? And those kind of experiences and the more repeated or the more intense can, whether it's trauma or just that slow drip over time in childhood, just build in and automatize in a mind that is, doesn't have the context to properly understand that. We don't live in an object world where objectivist ideas are dominant so that we get a better idea from the outset of what self-esteem can and should be in, in, a, in a developing child or in ourselves. <clears throat> Just to bring it to a personal note, when I learned objectivism, uh, it was the concept of self-esteem that really hit me personally, emotionally, hard psychologically. I, I, because I had, I think I would describe at the time, a very mixed self-esteem. I had a strong sense of myself in some ways and a very negative sense of myself in other ways. And that was just coming from my childhood. And there's nothing I could do about it. So that even when I learned the what how the question put it, the proper standard of self-esteem. <laughs> so even when I learned what self-esteem really was, what it was all about, why we need it, so forth, what really earned self-esteem, all of that, it, that knowledge was vital, don't get me wrong, vital to me dealing with those other self-esteem issues, but they didn't make them go away, poof, like magic. Friends, if it doesn't, most of the time our evaluations do automatically result in a new emotion. When they don't, when there's some persistent issue, especially from childhood, that's when we need to seek a therapist. There are a lot of good therapists out there some good objectivist type therapists out there too. Uh, if we need that kind of help, seek therapy. Uh, sometimes introspection just isn't going to do it and correct matters that we want corrected about ourselves. But sometimes it takes therapy. It Sometimes it takes, even if you don't go to therapy, it'll take years of introspection and thought to really uproot that childhood issue that is still having an emotional impact on you today. So that when you walk into a, a party and you have that sense of social anxiety, oh gosh, uh, queasy feeling, I'm meeting new people. Oh my God, there's attractive women here, you know? <laughs> and suddenly you've got this, you, this heightened sense of social anxiety. If you wanna deal with that, you see, you identify that there's this underlying self-esteem issue there because you're walking into parties feeling that way, address that issue. It'll take time, and having the correct philosophical knowledge will not make that automatically go away. You've got to think about it. You've got to introspect. You've got to work against that emotion. 
You've got to have that countervailing emotion that I was talking about. Start developing that counterweight emotion, focusing on that other thing. Hey, no, wait a minute. There's nothing wrong with me. People are gonna people are gonna run away screaming and scared because I walk into a party. Uh, so uh, I'm perfectly up to this. Uh, have that countervailing emotion to work against it, so that you can develop a whole new psychology, a whole new social psychology that will reduce that social anxiety. Excellent advice. And and yes, psychology is a thing. Uh, is. We have a couple of new members in the YouTube. Now, we mentioned you can go to ironcenter.co.uk You can become a member of the Iron Center UK. Gets you access to all sorts of perks, including James, your your uh, lecture, your, your courses on Leonard Peikoff's courses on Sunday mornings, the study groups, invaluable stuff. Lots of insights that uh, we're having a great just time. reading them. We're having a great time, and, and I, I think we're exploring different areas, and people can participate with their own questions, and we have a discussion about it. So if you want to participate in some really interesting and sometimes high-level discussions of philosophy, this time we're doing the history of philosophy, which is going to be loaded with all those issues, do become a subscriber to uh, Ayn Rand Center UK, and you can join us on Sundays for those discussions. You can join in on the discussions with the Fountainhead Book Club, for example, and other perks that you get. So please, people, uh, consider becoming a regular member. You can do so for a very modest amount of money every month. Uh, yes. But the bennies are really good, if I do now, say so myself. <laughs> now, if you want something, if you want a little extra, a little more fun that you can have, you can become a member of the Ayn Rand Center UK's YouTube channel. And I mention that because we have a couple of people who've just come on board. We have Bald Boy Ajax is now a member on the YouTube chat on the uh, the YouTube uh, membership for ARC UK and Bella Tater Taz 16 has just rejoined says I'm glad to be a member again so thank you for that thank you for joining the ARC UK YouTube channel on the YouTube it's something a little extra but you get access to feeds that even if you're not a member you can at least see the member activities your Sunday morning discussions, as well as the Fountainhead, the Fiction Fan Club. That is great fun as well. So thank you. Thank you for joining. Thank you for becoming members there. Now, I've got a bit of a difficult question here. Number four, this is a hard one because knowing philosophy and even knowing something about psychology, still, some things are hard. So let me get to question number four. Leonard Peikoff was asked on his podcast, can a voluntarily morbidly obese person consider himself or herself an objectivist. In other words, if a person chooses to be morbidly obese, he's killing himself. He is doing it voluntarily. So it's like a suicide. And Leonard Pigoff starts off his answer this way. He says, if objectivism is defined as accepting and advocating a whole system of philosophy. Well, a fat person could do that just as well as a thin person. They could accept all the ideas of the philosophy from the primacy of existence all the way down to romantic art and believe it all and write it all and speak it all. So they're an objectivist. But if you're going to define an objectivist as somebody who not only holds the ideas, but applies them consistently in action, well, then this person is obviously not an objectivist because he is not acting in accordance with life. And this can hardly be an error of knowledge because he knows, and everybody in our civilization knows enough to know that you're in a life-threatening danger if you're 
morbidly obese. Question is, is this really directly voluntary? In other words, could the person just say, stop, and then stop the overeating? And if so, well, then food is just like poison to this person, and it's out and out immoral not to stop. I mean, it's suicide with no valid context. That, however, and usually I just read a bit and talk about it, but I've got to get to this part of Dr. Peikoff's answer. That, however, is almost never the case for morbidly obese people. Usually there is a complicated psychological mechanism going way back to their childhood, involving early conclusions that they came to that are buried, perhaps unknown, difficult to disentangle and disintegrate from the rest of their consciousness that are therefore not directly voluntary and could take years of therapy to remove. One of the commonest reasons is that a person decides early well, that there's a threat from the opposite sex and that obesity involves protection from the opposite sex. You know, no man would be remote, remotely interested if you're gargantuan, unless it's Rubens. But leaving him aside, oh, he puts the sculptor in there who sculpted yeah. beautifully and large women. Lar large ladies. <laughs> so he wraps up his answer this way. So obesity has got a huge psychological component. It would be impossible to just simply go on a real diet by will if your subconscious strongly holds such premises. You would die of anxiety. <laughs> Unquote Leonard Peacock. I love that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's so easy to it's so yeah, easy but... to say to people who are doing what is so clearly the wrong thing. Well if you were rational you'd do the right thing. Right. And, you and know not that there's nothing to that. Hand washer, an obsessive hand washer uh doesn't want to have that feeling. <laughs> they know it's interfering with their practical existence, but there's this yes. overwhelming. Now, where did that come from? In the case of overeating, Dr. Peikoff does zero in, in my experience, on an area which is so frequently the cause here, child abuse, sexual abuse, rape. Oh, yes. And victims of sexual abuse, uh, very frequently are exactly the ones who will become unhealthily overweight. Right. Um, it does, it does two things. It protects Stay them. away from me. That was a threat. And it's a mechanism. Yeah. And that kind of person definitely um, needs probably to seriously uh, get into psychotherapy um, and uh, address that issue. Because until you address the issue that's causing it, that feeling isn't going to go away. Right. We had the example earlier of Ayn Rand uh, usually resisting her uh, desire for Godiva chocolates. And Ayn Rand was in a position where she didn't have that. Um, obviously, that wasn't her context because she was able to resist the Godiva chocolates most of the time, most of the time. But the point is for us to be able to do that requires she had a healthy self-esteem and she didn't have a psychology that traumatized her in that way about uh intimacy the other the opposite sex that might have been in fact an un, a forced unconsented to thing uh so you try and make yourself unattractive to the opposite sex for some reason um that's not really even clear to you no that's what needs to be addressed if you're going to have long-term success here uh and until you get under that you, you know the hoarders are like that too they'll do the and if you don't address the underlying problem 
that these people with OCD, whatever the manifestations of whether it's OCD or an eating disorder or something. Uh, but what I liked about Dr. Peikoff's answer here is uh, just exactly that, his acknowledgement that psychology is still your psychology. Having a correct philosophy and being an objectivist doesn't change the fact that you have a psychology. And people who are morbidly obese, most of those cases are people who are dealing with psychological issues. Uh, we can have a little compassion, can't we, as objectivists? Yes, the fact that we have psychologies does not absolve us from moral questions. We are still responsible for our voluntary actions and thoughts. No question about that. But when you see someone acting self-destructively like that, and they are themselves in a tense situation about that, aware of the issue, it's almost always because there's some underlying psychological issue that is not directly within their control. Um, that's the, the best way I have of putting it. Very good. And I think it's important to put that out there. It's not that, you know, it's not that we don't look at that situation and say, well, you know, here's a direction which you should move. Here's, here's what the ideal is. But yeah, to simply then judge them and say, well, but that's not the ideal and therefore you're irrational. Right. It's not only inaccurate, but it's, it's completely, it, it's actually kind of vicious. Yeah. Uh, and there's no reason for it other than maybe it makes us feel better. So, yes, yes. And, uh, and that relates to something else psychological that I find kind of disturbing. <laughs> Self-esteem is not a matter of comparing yourself to anyone else. And, yes. it's you know, if you're doing that, you know, if you're looking at these people's problems to get some kind of reassurance about yourself, that is not a healthy approach at all. <laughs> oh, oh, am I going to talk about that tomorrow? But I'll get to that in a moment. Because there's one more question here, and you know, maybe we'll uh, we'll use this to tie it all together here. Because question number five, Leonard Pigoff was asked, and we talked about this one before, but I love that you added it here because again, we'll use this to tie everything together. Is it a mistake to entertain a strong desire for something that is impossible, or to fantasize about what one would do in life if circumstances were different? For example, would it be wrong for a blind person to burn with desire to become a pilot or for a person to spend large amounts of time thinking about what he would do if he could go back 20 years with the knowledge he has now? Well, those all sound like they could be useful thought exercises, but the idea of, of constantly, you know, no. this, this is what I spent all of my time doing. And, and of course, all you can do at that point is feel bad about it. Yeah, well, but time travel into the past is just a metaphysical yeah. impossibility. <laughs> just yeah. cannot happen. Never going to happen. Wouldn't it be great? You know, there's a famous English writer who said, youth is wasted on the young. And in a way, it's true. Wouldn't it be yeah. wonderful if I could take all this mature experience, knowledge, and psychology with yeah. me and go back a couple of decades? Boy, uh, I'd be, I'd have a young body and a mature mind. And wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's the metaphysically impossible, of course. Right. Um, yeah, I find the value of time travel thought experiments is to say, if I go back 20 years, here's what I would do. Now that I've thought about that and I've seeded that idea in my mind, let me think, if I can go forward 20 years, what will I wish I had done? And now I need to get started on that. 
Now there's the healthy approach. There's the healthy approach, sir. Ah, yeah. as usual, Robert, the benevolent. It, it did help approach. me make some better decisions. In <laughs> <laughs> I can see that's coming from experience, but profound wisdom, sir. Yeah. Oh, thank you. So Leonard Peikoff starts his answer off as presented. Yes. You know, is it irrational? This is 100% a mistake. Now to have a brief desire to become something that is impossible, to have an idle occasional fantasy about what you would have done differently if you'd known, well, that's fine. But to do it the way you describe it here, to burn with desire or spend large amounts of time, well, that is thoroughly self-destructive and it completely takes you away from the reality of your life. It is the mental equivalent of joining a monastery, cutting yourself off from active, from action, from value, from gain. It's just as senseless as saying, well, is it okay to have a burning desire to jump unaided to the moon? <laughs> if that is your desire, well, that is a psychological problem. You know, what if you have a burning desire to douse yourself in oil and set yourself afire? Well, it's just a more rapid way of destroying yourself, destroying your values, destroying your interests, and destroying your mind. Remember that value, as defined by Ayn Rand, as that which one acts to gain and keep. In these cases, by definition, well, you can't act to gain and you can't get. If that is the case, it's not a value. It is an escape from reality. My only advice to you is, to divert your passion and fantasy to something you are going to achieve in reality. There are plenty of things a blind person can do, which are great mental challenges beyond becoming a pilot. Oh, yeah. And there are plenty of things you can do, even if you're 65, that leave you ample room for self-expression. No matter how badly you've mangled your life 20 years ago, live it now. No. Unquote. Mic drop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, the, the examples that the questioner brings up are kind of extreme. We but... have, you know, we can have these desires, but if the desire really, look, wouldn't it be wonderful if I had a magical ability and every time I snapped my fingers, I could, you know, get whatever value I wanted. Well, well, sure, that'd be swell if magic was real. <laughs> Unfortunately, magic is not real. Or actually, fortunately, magic is not real. <laughs> we live in a causal world. And that's much happier about that. But you see, to live in that world is a kind of self-indulgence that takes you away from this world. And it's not going to correct the psychological issues that are making you unhappy and that make you want to believe and live in this world where you have magical powers. I ask, well, why do you want to live in this world where you have magical powers? We need to get under to that underlying um, emotion if we're going to get our emotions on the same page with our thinking and our philosophy. And that's the key here. Um, the fact that we have a psychological problem is not an excuse for not dealing with it either. If it really is something impossible, seek therapy if introspection isn't helping. Really, honestly, you need to because you're doomed to frustration. The, the blind man who wants to be an airline pilot is just dooming himself to frustration. Yeah. 
He should be focusing on, or the older chap like myself, who may have some passing fantasy, I'd like to be, you know, a lead forward in the NBA. <laughs> I have to, I have, okay, that, 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 that ship has sailed. I'm afraid that's not going to happen. And so if I were to obsess on that kind of a thing, it would not be healthy and it would be counter um, to my happiness. And so if you really still have this persistent desire for the impossible, uh, seek therapy if introspection isn't fixing it. Because the point here is that uh, we all have psychologies. We should have compassion for the fact that people have psychologies. We can only we can't psychologize. We can only judge people on their conscious thinking and acting. Uh, but on the other hand, really, uh, our happiness is in our hands. And if there is an issue like that, some desire you have for the impossible that's persistent and coming back on you, uh, you really do have to think that through and try and address it. Uh, and we can. It's not as though our psychology is set in concrete. My final thought would be there are some things that may be so difficult to change, it's not worth it. Um, there may be aspects of our psychology that are just so deep that I just have to learn to live with that emotion. Um, and that may be the case too. Even there, we are still morally responsible for our conscious thinking and acting. Um, and uh, even if uh, even if the you know, 30 years of psychotherapy isn't going to make much of a dent in it, we're still responsible for our conscious actions, morally speaking. Psychology and morality coexist at all times in each one of us. The fact that we have a psychology and that some of that is beyond our volitional control is a fact. But we also have volition. Thinking is an act of choice. It takes an effort. And we can either act on our best thinking or we can evade and act otherwise. We have free will. We are psychological beings and we are moral beings. <laughs> and the one doesn't contradict the other. Too often these days, uh, we're presented with it as a choice between a clinical way of evaluating people, psychology, which is amoral, or a uh, moral evaluation of that person of their actual conscious behavior. The two are never in contradiction. Uh, as a former public prosecutor, I constantly was being given the psychological excuses from the defense attorney. They would often send them out to a psychiatrist to have them shrunk. Well, you see the terrible all oh, they were under such pressures and so, but wait a minute, your client just robbed a bank and stuck a gun in someone's face. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. were they unconscious? Did they, you know, <laughs> what was the deal there? No, they consciously did this and they, you know, anyone knows that's wrong, full stop. Full stop. No excuse to point your gun in that person's face. I don't care what your childhood was. We are simultaneously, and nor am I saying, on the other hand, that we completely even ignore the psychology of the defendant in that case. No, I'm just saying he's a moral agent and he gets the full punishment for the crime, whatever his psychology was. We, we can, we are, and we must consider each other to be both psychological beings and moral agents. Yeah, we can take the context into account when we get to the punishment phase of the trial. That should, <laughs> that should not affect whether he's guilty or not. Exactly right. And I'll even there say, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Prosecutor Jim was always tough to persuade on a purely psychological issue, but it can impact how we treat the person. That's absolutely correct and should sometimes how you treat even the person convicted of a crime. But the point is, they're still convicted of that crime. 
and they still merit the, the punishment that anyone else would get under law for their conscious behavior. And that's what makes it objective. Absolutely. Outstanding. And, um, you know, kind of the flip side of this, as you were talking, I was thinking of, and there's an old meme that runs around, even if you're older and you think, oh, if I could go back 20 years, you know, I've always lived my life with the premise that the vast majority of our limitations are self-imposed. There, there's a meme that goes around that says, you know, if you're 58 years old and you've always wanted to go to college and get a degree, but you think, you're, well, you're too old and it doesn't matter now. You're, you know, in four years, you're going to be 62 years old. And that's going to happen. Whatever you do in four years, you're going to be 62 years old. Now, the question is, do you want to be 62 years old with that college degree? Or do you want to be 62 years old saying, yeah, I still never did that thing I always wanted to do? Right. Right. Live now. Would you that I that may be the gem from our discussion today. Live now. If you have the regret from the past, just correct it so that it won't be in the future. If you do want that better life, start living it now. We always have that choice. Oh God, that's taking your values seriously. And taking values seriously doesn't mean being able to argue better for them. It means go out there and do them. It means taking your life seriously. It means taking your, you know, happiness seriously. Uh, You know, um, in effect, not diminish, not laughing at ourselves. At ourselves, you made such a great distinction the other day online. Speaking of Facebook discussions online, you made such a wonderful distinction the other day. Sometimes I will laugh, not at myself, but about something I've done. Oh, right. silly me, I made that mistake. And I'll laugh to dismiss the importance of it. Uh, there's a big difference between laughing at some silly thing that I did and laughing at myself. Right. That's a formula for undermining one's self-esteem. You want to talk about setting yourself up for self-esteem issues and emotional cognitive clashes. That's the way to do it. Laugh at yourself. Uh, no, no. But we can still laugh about things, silly things that we've done. Surely uh, most of us have done silly things that are, are risible and are worth a little giggle. Uh, right. Yeah. Yes. Ayn Rand makes that distinction in her fiction. Some of us laugh because we see something greater. We've made a trivial mistake, something silly. And we laugh at that because we know that it's it's trivial, it's insignificant, and we know we are bigger and better than that. And some people laugh because they want everything to remain small. Right. Yes. So I'm, right. I'm absolutely able to laugh. I wouldn't even say it, laugh at myself, but laugh at silly things that I do. Absolutely. Because, yeah, yeah. Because it's trivial. It's silly. It's absurd. And what I do with my life is so much bigger than that. Yeah, you know, in in that regard, I'm going to be doing a show tomorrow. I'll jump right to that. I'm going to be doing an episode of Life on Earth called The Vice Squad, because I think too many of us maybe are members of the Vice Squad in this in the exact sense of what a Vice Squad does of persecuting people for victimless crimes. And so I'll be talking about why values are primary and vice is derivative, and you know the efficacy of virtue. And the almost triviality of vice and why good news isn't even news. If it bleeds, it leads. And that's going to be a fun episode. Kind of the oh, flip side of some miss. of what we're that talking sounds... about today. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I can't miss that. No, Thank really you. great idea. But um, between now and then, between now and then, there is, there's been a whole series of shows on the Ayn Rand Center UK, which you can support by going to aynrandcenter.co.uk. And here's what you're supporting. There's been a whole series on fixing education. 
you know, we talk about psychology and a lot of us have baggage from our youth. Well, a lot of my baggage came from my bad educational experiences. (laughs) This this series started out with some episodes with Lisa Van Dam and Lisa Van Dam presented several episodes on fixing education and brought in Matt Bateman and, um, it became a whole series. The playlist is available on YouTube on the Ayn Rand Center UK channel. And the latest episode, well, it's the one you're presenting in an hour. That is going to be something for folks to tune in for. AynRandCenter.co.uk to support it. The Ayn Rand Center UK channel on YouTube to watch it. James, that's going to be good. I am looking forward to you talking more about fixing education. And uh, your episode is actually called, let me get the title of it here. How should history be taught? And James, you've got to be the guy to talk about that because I know you're familiar with Leonard Peikoff's lectures on on fixing education and you are studying the history of Western thought, of Western philosophy on these Sunday morning sessions. So folks, that's going to be good. You have got to tune in to the Ayn Rand Center UK and watch James Valiant present how history should be taught. That's going to be good. Well, thank you. I, I... Hope that we got some good insights there, and what a great series it's been. I mean, uh, Elisa Van Dam is a hard act to follow, uh, but I think I have something uh, that people might find valuable. And please come in with your questions on on the topic too. Well, you know, I watch a show on that, and I think, well, it's too late for me. I've already studied history, or I've already done my education, and yet I always get insights from my own personal life from discussions of that kind. So I know that this is going to be good. I appreciate the appreciation that we're seeing in the chat as well as the strong and healthy conversation, a place for equal to reality to find people to interact with is on the channel. Right. Right. My Center UK shows. <laughs> I want to give one more huge shout out to Free Trade. Thank you very much for supporting the Ayn wow. Center UK yeah. in a very generous manner you did today. All contributions are appreciated, but this went above and beyond. So thank you very much for that. Folks, this has been another Peak Off Wednesday. We are enjoying, I don't think we're ever going to run out of insights from keeping it real, bringing ideas down to earth by Leonard Peacock. James, you always bring even more to the conversation than we find in the book, and I deeply appreciate that. I did a whole show on with Amy Nacer on compliments. I linked to that online recently. And I've got to pay you the compliment of everything that we discuss, whether it's Ayn Rand or Leonard Peacock. And for all the richness that is in that content, you always bring even more to the conversation. And my hope is that these conversations never stop. They're certainly not going to next Wednesday when we will do this all over again. Yeah. Thank you, James. Thank you so much. Um, I also, you know, it's true. I think I do have some insight of my own to bring to this. But normally, if I have added wisdom here, it's because I had the good fortune of being able to study from Dr. Peacock myself. And... uh, it's almost as though my additional comments are in the back of my hand, head thinking, oh, well, if if Leonard had had more time, what else would he have said? And I'm, and I'm trying to channel as best I can my Dr. Peacock uh, in giving the, the, additional, uh, the additional information. Uh, but thank you very much. Well, I will use the concepts in the healthy objectivist in more exact manner and say, I'm jealous, but not envious. <laughs> because I'm so glad that that happened for you and that you're sharing that with us. Folks, this has been another Peak Off Wednesday. We'll be back next week. In the meantime, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your contributions in the chat, both intellectual and monetary. Keep supporting the Ayn Rand Center UK and join us again in an hour to see James Valiant talk about how history should be taught. Have an outstanding afternoon. Be well. <laughs>